The first reading this morning is from Joseph Stilglitz, Nobel Prize winner in economics. Alexis de Tocqueville once described what he saw as the chief part of the peculiar genius of American society, something he called self-interest properly understood. The last two words were the key. Everyone possesses self-interest in a narrow sense. I want what is good for me right now. Self-interest properly understood is different. It means appreciating that paying attention to everyone else's self-interest, in other words, the common welfare, is in fact a precondition for one's own ultimate well-being. De Tocqueville was not suggesting that there was anything noble or idealistic about this outlook. In fact, he was suggesting the opposite. It was a mark of American pragmatism. Those canny Americans understood a basic fact. Looking out for the other guy isn't just good for the soul. It's good for business. The second reading is from New York Times columnist Kathleen Parker, who wrote last week, Envy is the core emotion driving the current debate about income inequality. The third reading is from Pope Francis. Some people continue to defend trickle-down theories which assume that economic growth encouraged by a free market will inevitably succeed in bringing about greater justice and inclusiveness in the world. This opinion, which has never been confirmed by facts, expresses a crude and naive trust in the goodness of those wielding economic power. And the last reading is from Representative Jack Kingston of Georgia, who said in November, one of the things I've talked to the Secretary of Agriculture about is this. Why don't you have the kids that are getting a free lunch pay a dime, pay a nickel, to instill in them that there is, in fact, no such thing as a free lunch. Or maybe have them sweep the floor of the cafeteria. And yes, I understand, so I understand that would be an administrative problem, and I understand that it would probably lose you money, but think what we would gain as a society in getting people, getting the myth out of their heads that there is such a thing as a free lunch. In the 19th century, if you don't remember your high school American history, corrupt railroad capitalists created the Panic of 1873 and the Panic of 1893 through lying about their business activities, buying off politicians, and siphoning off capital into their own pockets. Railroad corporations set up phony corporations that allowed them to embezzle money from the railroads into their own bank accounts. When exposed, the entire economy collapsed as banks failed around the country. The Panic of 1893 lasted five years, created 25% unemployment, and was the worst economic crisis in American history before the Great Depression. These financial giants felt no responsibility, legally or morally, for any of their actions. As Cornelius Vanderbilt said at the time, what do I care about the law? Ain't I got the power? 
and surprised. None of them received any legal consequences from any of their actions. We euphemistically call this period of history the Gilded Age. And people like Vanderbilt and Rockefeller and J.P. Morgan, we call them robber barons. And we call the working people the poor. Long ago in my college student days, I chose this period of American history as the background for my master's thesis. Most specifically, I was interested in the effect of the then popular theory of social Darwinism. That was all the sociological rage at the time, and it was used as the defense for the economic behaviors of that time. It was led by the man who coined the term survival of the fittest. That was not Darwin. He advocated applying Darwinian principles to the workings of society, arguing against social reform to help the poor because their poverty was due to their own weaknesses. The poor were unfit and should be eliminated, and not eliminated by making them rich, by the way. <laughs> he and his supporters argued against all state intervention to assist the poor or working man because this would impede the natural development and progression of society. Unlike plutocrats like John D. Rockefeller, who said God chose him to be wealthy because of his superior character. Eventually, when in income inequality and working conditions got bad enough, there was a backlash led by a grassroots movement. The, this progressive movement pushed the government to balance the scales through laws like the federal income tax, child labor laws, and workers' compensation. They realized what Pope Francis is restating today. It is naive to trust in the innate goodness of those wielding power. I wanted to, in my thesis, look at what were the residual effects in our society today in our social and political thought of social Darwinism. Were there any? Was that just a short-lived and meaningless theory in the long term? Well, this was the 1960s, I hate to admit, and it was not really easy to determine to what extent these ideas had permeated the national psyche. The 50s and 60s were a time of progress for the middle class and even most of the lower classes in this country. Education was affordable then. Business was good. Financial thinking was low risk. Income taxes were progressive. Wages were based on productivity. And CEOs made an average only 18 times more than their workers, rather than the 300 to 400 times we see now. Today, a new generation of plutocrats who wish to recreate the massive fortunes of the Gilded Age has arisen. Today, we have the highest levels of income inequality since the 1920s, and it's beginning to look like the Gilded Age. This began in the Reagan years with its emphasis on what was called supply-side economics, the theory that the rich drive society and the poor hang along for the ride. Regulatory laws and income taxes have been weakened or eliminated to support this economic theory. And by doing this, supposedly everyone was going to benefit. It would be good for the common welfare. 
Incestuous political and economic relationships abound, though, in this plutocratic world. Corporate executives bankroll their own and their friends' political campaigns. The politicians, in turn, pass legislation that handsomely pays back the corporate executives. De Tocqueville probably would not recognize this form of American pragmatism. Do we still believe that paying attention to everyone else's self-interest is a precondition for one's own ultimate well-being, or do we care only about our own well-being? What is most interesting are the arguments now being offered to justify this redistribution of wealth upward. Much of it, to me, is reminiscent of what the social Darwinists said in the 1890s. One of the most popular arguments heard is the fantasy that we have equality of opportunity in this country. Any and all could be in the 1%. Anyone who isn't just doesn't try hard enough. According to the World Value Survey, 70% of West Germans express the belief that people are poor because of imperfections in society not their own laziness, whereas 70% of Americans hold exactly the opposite view. People are poor because they are lazy and they could work their way out of poverty if they wanted to. Survival of the fittest. Some academic researchers have found recently that the wealthy believe that they are genetically different from the rest of us. The lower classes are not merely unfortunate, according to the upper classes, they are genetically inferior. They express the opinion that success comes to those who deserve it, and those of lower status must not deserve it. America likes to think of itself as a land of equality and opportunity. Actually, the U.S. has one of the worst opportunity rates of any of the advanced economies. A child's life chances are more dependent on the income of his or her parents than most other industrial economies. By the most common measures of inequality, the U.S. is ranked as the 39th most unequal economy out of 136 countries. The U.S. is ranked right around Uganda, Jamaica, Cameroon, and the Ivory Coast. Canada is ranked 101st. The entire European Union is ranked 111th. Luckily, and I don't use that term lightly, this has not affected most of us right here today, either because of our age, like me, where I grew up in a different time, or our advantages in our lives. We had middle-class parents. We were able to get educated. We had friends in high places to help us. We had luck. We worked hard. But the middle class is shrinking. Their share of the pie is now less and decreasing. And the share of those in the lower income levels is almost non-existent and going down. What is surprising to me is that most people are aware of this. This is not news, most of these things I've said. In a 2010 survey, 
Three quarters, 75% of Americans believed inequality has increased over the previous 20 years, and they think it's not a good thing. Well, at this point you're saying, what has all this got to do with being in church today? I know what I have said so far sounds more like a history lesson or a political speech, definitely not a religious sermon. But our belief in the inherent worth and dignity of every person calls upon us to ensure dignified treatment so people can live in dignity, including a living wage and decent working conditions. Our belief in justice, equity, and compassion in human relations calls on us to ensure that there is true equal opportunity to achieve according to your abilities and effort. And if you are incapable, physically or mentally, to provide for yourself, we will assist you. Our belief in the world, the goal of world community with peace, liberty, and justice for all calls upon us to change the world for the better and to oppose systems of oppression, including economic oppression. Where is the justice of a society that has such extremes of luxury for some and misery for others? This is not just a moral problem. The concentration of resources in the hands of the top 1% depresses economic activity. Consolidation of so much wealth and capital in so few hands is inefficient because it depresses demand. Any way you look at it, the concentration of wealth does not serve human need or the social interest, and it is unjust. Many UU congregations and individuals think that social action do means doing works of charity, and we're pretty good at it. We're good at giving money to worthy organizations and working in soup kitchens and helping to provide shelter for the homeless. And that's fine. But it does not change the unjust structures of our society that cause hunger and homelessness and poverty. We need to work for justice, not simply do charity. Charity is like a painkiller for cancer. It provides temporary relief, but it doesn't cure the cancer. Way back in the 19th century, the Unitarian minister, Theodore Parker, described the difference between social service and adv advocacy this way. He said, let's say there's a hole in a public bridge, and the bridge doesn't have any lights on it. And many people fall through the hole, and they perish. Our mercy, our caring, pulls a few of them out of the water. But we don't fix the hole, we don't light the bridge, and we don't warn people of the peril. We need charity that palliates effects of wrong and the greater justice, which removes the cause. Well, I know this is kind of controversial for me to say some of these things, 
And you may be thinking that the church just doesn't have any business getting involved in politics. We should stick to matters of spirituality or charity. It is certainly true that we must stay out of partisan politics as a church. But the separation of church and state does not mean the separation of religion from moral issues. Many political issues are moral issues. Most of us would agree that global warming is a moral issue. It threatens the very existence of life on earth. Gender equality is a moral issue because it deprives some of the same rights as others. Yet global warming and gender equality both require political solutions. The same can be said for economic justice. It is not uncontrollable technological and social change that has produced this two-tier society, according to Joseph Stiglitz, the economist I quoted earlier, in his book, The Price of Inequality. He argues that it is the exercise of political power by moneyed interest over legislative and regulatory processes that have caused it. While there may be underlying economic forces at play, he writes, politics has shaped the market and shaped it in ways that advantage the top at the expense of the rest. But politics, he insists, is subject to change. He says, I know it is tempting to throw up our hands and say, I'm only one person, I have no power, there's nothing I can do. But we can't think that way. It is time to challenge the notion that business should be free from government regulation. The taxes on the rich should, should not be continued to be cut, that we should not privatize public services, and that those public services that remain should not be reduced. The pendulum, I would suggest, has swung too far, way too far. It is time for a change. Remember that 75% of Americans that I referred to earlier <clears throat> that knew that this was a problem and knew that it affected them? Well, they asked them another question. They asked them, what should we do about it? And 25% of the 100% said government action. And another 25%, the other side of the pendulum, said we could solve income inequality and poverty by working harder. <clears throat> but 50% just didn't know what to do. <clears throat> Except they did know they hated the government and didn't trust it, and so it shouldn't be the entity that does something. For anything to change, these are the people who need to understand that it is mainly a government solution that is needed. I feel as though much of the population of this country does not understand the positive role of the government or even the role of the government period because of the constant anti-government propaganda that controls the national conversation. Are there ways for us to educate our family, our friends, acquaintances, strangers about the ramifications of the issue and ways to bring about change? Are there ways that we can help change the conversation or at least balance it? 
Really, my dream is that we would have a grassroots movement, like the progressive movement. There was no tea party 10 years ago, and maybe it was less than 10 years ago. I couldn't even remember. And look at their influence now. It came from some kind of grassroots movement. It could have been the Occupy Wall Street movement, but they just never took off. I think it's because, and that's one reason why I didn't get involved, I think they did not focus their attention in the direction that would bring about the changes they wanted. Congress and legislatures. Why would a CEO say, I want to give up my money? I want to change my ways. It's benefiting his self-interest. I think that was a lost opportunity for us during that period. I am also hopeful that there will be more religious involvement around this issue, and that's why I'm speaking to you today. What would Jesus do? I am encouraged by Pope Francis. I'm not much into popes, but <laughs> I am encouraged by him. I, I think he's fascinating. He is not afraid to speak out, and he has called for Catholics to become more involved with issues of poverty throughout the world. And most encouraging is his calling for all religions and even us atheists to join him to work together to better the world. A Baptist theology professor at Baylor is writing and has taken uh, his fellow fundamentalists on by saying, among other things, if a Christian is going to embrace and endorse free market capitalism, he or she at least should explain how the least of these, as Jesus said, are going to be cared for in that system. Reference to Darwinian free market dynamics seems to me to imply no care for the least, the unfit, the weak and powerless. The UUA and we as a church and we as individuals need to get more verbal about the minimum wage acts that's going through Congress and unemployment compensation and about the bigger, more complex issues of tax reform, financial regulation, and campaign finance reform, which are all difficult for many voters to have the time to understand. Someone needs to take the time and maybe help explain it to other people. Let us not forget that our fates, the fates of all of us, rich and poor, sophisticated and simple, are ultimately and intimately intertwined. And that, yes, we are our brothers and our sisters' keepers. We, the people, are the common good. That's how the U.S. Constitution begins. We, the people, we are all in this together. Blessed be.